I'll invite you to go ahead and grab a seat, and I want to invite David up with me. So I want to introduce you to David. If you don't know David, he is a member of our community. He is husband to Jolene and father of Naomi and Andrew, who are running around outside, and he's going to preach for us today. Uh, David is also a professor over at Regent College and teaches ethics, and what else do you teach there? Some theology. Some, some theology, that's good. It's a good thing that Regents teach. Uh, and yeah, we're delighted to have him here. Um, we're taking a break from Luke today, and he's going to uh, preach to us from, from the passage in John's Gospel that we just read. So will you join me just um, praying briefly for David? <laughs> he needs it much higher than I do. Uh, then, then I'll hand it over to him. Let's pray. Uh, living God, we come before you and thank you for your church, uh, your body, and the, the gift of... Uh, many voices and many different parts that all offer something unique. And we thank you for David today, and we pray that uh, as he preaches from your holy scriptures, that you will speak uh, to our to our lives, to our hearts, and may um, your holy Holy Spirit be present in this moment. We ask all this in your name, Amen. Amen. All right, over to you. Well, I also want to say thanks to everyone who is serving today. When you serve, you realize just how much goes into these events, and um, you see the attention to detail, but also the spiritual vitality that's a part of preparing for them. So thank you, everyone who's putting this service on. I am a friend of God. You may know the expression from a well-known worship song, but do you realize how strange it actually sounds? Imagine it being sung outside the SkyTrain station on Commercial and Broadway. People that stop long enough to listen may start giving this singer a wide berth. I am a friend of God. For a human to be a friend of God is an impossibility. An impossibility. After all, it's common wisdom that friendship requires equality. Friends meet as equals. Consider Aristotle, the marine biologist and philosopher from the 4th century BC. In his influential count, friends need to share a station in life. There has to be equality. In the case that a wide gap develops in either virtue or vice, in affluence or anything else, Quote, they no longer remain friends and do not even expect to do so. Now, as much as I hope for friendship that goes beyond social and economic distinctions, there's real wisdom here. A few weeks ago, I spoke to a longstanding friend of mine, one who was in my wedding party. Our friendship grew out of the soil of northern British Columbia, into which, side by side, we stooped over hundreds of times to plant spruce and pine seedlings. We endured the same weather, paid the same amount, a dime per tree, and worked at the same pace, or so he likes to think. <laughs> now, though, he's become a corporate commercial lawyer, and I've been working in the academic gig economy. My friend is affectionate, self-deprecating, and prizes his family and friends. Yet I remember wondering how our friendship would fare in the years to come as the difference in our fortunes widened. Some of you may know the feeling. Some of you have watched a friend ascend. Maybe you yourself 
have been the one to ascend. If the difference in human station can be challenging for friendship, how much more is there a gap between creatures and God? Aristotle says it plainly, quote, friendship still lasts in spite of continual losses between humans, but where there is a great gulf as between God and a human, friendship becomes impossible. The authority of Aristotle. Yet Christians sing, I am a friend of God. Do you realize the strangeness of that statement? The Bible is itself hesitant to speak of God as a friend of a creature. Consider the Elder Testament. There's no mention of it in Genesis. The prophet Isaiah says, God's ways are not our ways, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. The distance between us is the distance between heaven and earth. Sure, there's plenty of wisdom about human-to-human -human friendship in Proverbs, and we get arguably the Bible's greatest example of friendship in Job and his companions. Really, they deserve a closer look. But human friendship with God Admittedly, we get glimpses. Exodus 33:11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. The tent of meeting. Still, this idea, you may notice, gets subverted before we get too comfortable with it. In the very same chapter, Moses asks to see God's glory, to which God replies, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by, then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Face to face, you cannot see my face. So what are we left with? Those of us who come from a church background that seems too cozy with God may want to highlight the difference. You cannot see my face. We opt for what's called negative theology also called apophatic theology, which explores what we finite humans cannot say about a God who transcends human categories. This has its place. Once I get too comfortable and self-assured in my talk about God, I know it's time for my apophatic treatments. It's like a brisk ice bath. <laughs> Careful though, because there's a temptation to negative theology. Those of us who have a sense of hurt or betrayal with God can get deflective. Maybe that's come through a hard experience with the church. We start to speak about a God who cannot be known because we're deep down unsure if we can trust God again. Maybe we once naively thought in our evangelical phase that God spoke personally and directly, but now we know better. Now we have a liturgy. Whatever our reason, it can be tempting to resolve one way or the other, buddy Christ or the cloud of unknowing. But neither will do on its own, because to merely contrast nearness and distance is to misunderstand what theologians have typically meant when they say that God is transcendent. Transcendent, I want to gesture like this to say distance, but that's not what transcendence is. This is a subtle theological point, and bear with me for a moment. 
we are speaking of a God who is not merely different from what we know, in other words, not a creature, not a friend, but beyond all comparisons or contrasts. Beyond all comparisons or contrasts. So God can, if God so chooses, enter into creaturely life, even become personally united to it, even though never exhausted by it. Okay, theology. To understand that's claim, let's think together about today's scripture. John 15, open your Bibles, re-illumine your smartphones. Let's see how Jesus says goodbye. He sure knows how to say goodbye. His farewell discourses, as recorded in the Gospel of John, and thank you for giving me the permission to go outside the Luke series, are immensely powerful. For instance, what an offer we hear in 15 verse 9. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says to his followers, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Nothing less than the love of God in God's own being is offered to them, is offered, dare I say, to us. Jesus teaches that God can love human creatures not only as a creator loves a creature, but as God loves God's self. How can he offer this? This is, as John introduced his gospel, the word that was God, the word become flesh. The word, that divine person who does not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited. That divine person who is therefore unlike Adam and Eve, who is unlike us, the humans who grasp at Godhood. Humans grasp at Godhood. It's subtler in the church, but it happens in the church. In stark contrast, the word is God, but God in a posture of self-relinquishment toward the Father. The word become flesh could therefore kneel, could wash human feet, could speak of covenantal love to them. That's the immediate background to this discourse in 15. Could even speak of friendship. John then goes on to interweave the distinct Greek terms for love, agape and philia, as Jesus offers his whole self to his followers. John 15, 12 to 14. The words behind the English here are agape, which is often taken as self-sacrificial, impartial, divine love, and philia, a very human, preferential bond of affection, friendship. John 15, 12 to 14. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, I'm a father to two young children, and I have sometimes the overwhelming instinctual sense that if the circumstance required it, I would die for them. Would I do the same for my closest friend? How about friend number 387 on my Facebook account? Well, for close friends, what Jesus says here is actually not uncommon. Take Aristotle, quote, it is also true to say of the person of good character that he performs many actions for the sake of his friends and his country, and if necessary, even dies for them, close quote. Many who have served in our military express a similar willingness, and my brother has served in Afghanistan. Before rushing to show how Christians are different, 
Let's linger with that instinct and appreciate for it for what it is. Our creator has made a world in which friendship exists and is widely praised. A friend is someone for whom a person would die with no evident advantage to their family line. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. The statement itself, while wonderful, is common to virtuous pagans. What is novel here is the one who speaks it, the one who enacts it. This is the word that is God made flesh. And for a human to be a friend of God is an impossibility. Nevertheless, Jesus' offer of friendship, even to the point of self-sacrifice, suggests a kind of equality, a parity of life for life. And keep in mind that he's speaking to human sinners, like me, in active resistance to God. The idea of friendship, the offer of friendship, is reinforced when Jesus says what his followers are not, at least in his eyes. John 15, 15, I do not call you servants any longer. Notice that he doesn't say you are no longer servants. If he had, the other New Testament writers didn't get the memo. As you know, the letter writers, Paul and Romans, etc., willingly refer to themselves as servants of God, even provocatively persons enslaved to God. What Jesus says here is, I no longer call you servants. The I here, Jesus, has not only become human, but has also taken the role of a servant, as we see in the foot washing scene. He became a servant in their midst, and so in their company, can call them friends. Does this all mean that we are friends of God? Yes, but in a specific sense. Yes, in that whatever we say of Jesus, we say of God. That's why early theologians maintained that Mary was, in a sense, the bearer of God. Marvelous thing to say. Blows the mind. Jesus extends the Father's love to us. Jesus calls us friend, and therefore, God calls us friend. But we still retain the proper postures, creature, servant, daughter or son, towards God the Father, towards God in three persons. There's a whole trinity with whom we have to do. So Jesus says that he no longer calls them servant. What is this business about commands, then? Let's return to the slightly troubling statement that we just bypassed, and I'm tempted to continue to bypass, but I know this church takes scripture seriously, so I'm going to stick with it. 1514, you are my friends if you do what I command you. If you do what I command you, is Jesus offering friendship on the one hand and then reinstating servanthood on the other? Important question, and one that leads to our second point. Friendship means sharing one's mind. Friendship means sharing one's mind. Jesus does not define friendship as the absence of requests or even commands. What he does say is this, verse 15, I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you my mind. When he describes a servant, his focus is on the lack of shared knowledge. A servant, an enslaved person, is kept from knowing 
his or her master's business. They're just ordered to do it. In contrast, a friend is one with whom one shares one's mind. And that is what Jesus is offering here. It's language the Apostle Paul will pick up, even if he's more reticent about friendship language for his own reasons. But remember the lines, we have the mind of Christ, or let the same mind be in you that is yours in Christ Jesus. Consider what Jesus offers to share, because the content is very specific. This is not total knowledge, much as we might like that. Sorry if that's what you were hoping for. Consider how often we want that, how often people say that one day, perhaps in the age to come, we'll effectively know all the answers to why our lives went the way they did. This is something nowhere, it seems to me, promised in Scripture. So what does Jesus offer? 15, 15, I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. Keep in mind, and I have made known to you. So he's calling his friends, uh, disciples friends after months and years of shared mission, of teaching, of works of wonder. He's been sharing the knowledge necessary to the task, necessary to the day, Knowledge performed in submission to the timing of the one Jesus calls Father. He's been offering knowledge on the way, dynamic knowledge. Yet the particular course ahead and near future outcomes can still seem obscure. Let's steal a glance at the Gospel of Luke. In an episode we'll probably reach at our current pace by about 2024, <laughs> we see Jesus in Gethsemane pleading with the Father to take the cup from him, then ultimately submitting to the Father's will. He brings his disciples along, sharing this too with them, though the answer to his prayer is not decisive either way. What is going to happen? Jesus will share with them what the Father has given him to know, but we will need to share his deferential, self-relinquishing posture toward the Father, not grasping at omniscience. So what might Jesus ask of us in sharing this knowledge? I recall a time in 2012, hey Andrew, I recall a time in 2012 when I heard my friend preach on this text. Commenting on Jesus' reference to commands, he said that of course friends ask us to do things for them. They might be hard requests, but the more voluntary our response, the better. Sitting there, listening to my friend preach, I knew that I was being asked to do something hard, and the request was very specific, and I had no idea how hard at the time. I was nervous, in part because I'd just had a year of unemployment, as they say. I share this aware of how many in our societies have lost their jobs over the past year and a half, and my heart goes out to you. I found this state particularly difficult, for the Protestant work ethic is strong with my family, so how could I be sure of God's election as I waited in line at the EI office? I was also living at the time in our nation's capital, so I acutely felt the awkwardness of having no clear or impressive answer to the question, what do you do? I began to look down on myself. And yet there were my friends whose kind regard lifted me up. Daniel, Kirsten, Mark, Megan, Stuart, Carly, and Jolene, the woman whose kindness and loyalty won my heart. Just saying their names, I feel deep gratitude. And here's a Thanksgiving practice for you. Recount the names of your friends, 
who have accompanied you thus far. Write them down. Then maybe reach out and thank one of them for what they've been to you. Maybe an old friend you haven't been in touch with. At this time, in May of 2012, they helped me to discern my calling. It would involve moving across the ocean, taking a serious financial risk, with dubious career prospects on the other side. In short, there were good reasons for me to hesitate to do what I was asked. There are good reasons why some of you may hesitate after the year we've had to do something that's being asked of you. But I heard the words of my friend who spoke to me from scripture on the lives of faithful Christians. In and among his words, I heard the command of Jesus. Jesus who extends this offer of friendship, of companionship on the way. As I wrote in my journal at the time, I have heard you, friend, and come. And I can testify on the other side that Jesus tells the truth. His joy has come to me, makes my joy complete. I have had the opportunity to work for what Jesus has called fruit that will last. We have the opportunity to work for what Jesus calls fruit that will last. People produce so much fleeting content. You are offered the chance to produce something lasting. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. But let's return to this idea of being asked to do something hard. Friendship with Jesus is a living reality. It's not merely a commemorative friendship. I can't get by on what I did back in 2012. And so it's worth asking more plainly, do we actually really want to be Jesus's friends? It's a question asked by Victor Lee Austin in his excellent new book on friendship. If I could recommend one contemporary book, it would be his. Here's what he says. Quote, there are lots of perks. You get to be close to Jesus. You get to know what he's thinking. But then it might dawn on you that, as his friend, he can call on you anytime. You're never off duty, as it were. If something is bothering Jesus, uh, he's going to want to share it with you. If he's concerned about a family, worried about a child, thinking about someone who is alone, he might ask something of you. If he wants people uh, to understand him better, have a chance to move from ignorance into truth. He might call on you. Do you really want that? Do we want it? Austin's point is effective, even though I would want to say more about the joy Jesus invites us to share. But let's make an aside here on the whole phenomenon of sharing a mind. Because some of us have minds that are unwell. As we've heard, Today is Mental Health Day. Mental health care for all. Let's make it a reality, goes the slogan. As those living with mental illnesses, we're told to reach out and get help, find support. And those are wonderful invitations, even if we may find them frightening or inconvenient. But I gladly second them. I've seen at close range the damage of denial. But are we also told that we have something as those with mental health challenges unique to offer? Say I'm on antidepressants and seeing a psychologist regularly. 
I'm often nevertheless riven with anxiety. Do I too, in the midst of my mental darkness, can I be a good friend? Can I be a minister of the gospel? Does Jesus ask anything of me as I am? Here's the well-known 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, and obviously an exact genetic match for Derek Martin, our <laughs> worship leader. Spurgeon had regular and truly harrowing experiences of what he called grief of mind or even eclipse of the soul. Yet he regularly preached to audiences of thousands, ranging from day laborers to monarchs. He raised a family with his wife, Susanna, and helped to found orphanages. Speaking to his students training for ministry, he wanted them to know that mental darkness and those acute episodes did not disqualify them from ministry. On the contrary, it made them uniquely able to help others. He speaks about this at length out of his own life. Here's how he puts it, quote, some plants owe their medicinal qualities to the marsh in which they grow, others to the shade, shades in which they alone flourish, end quote. Who can live as a friend like Job's friends, when life reaches its depths, who can stay there? Who can dwell in the dark with another, helping them to find Jesus there with them? Those who have a mental illness and yet befriend others and yet minister to others. And if you want a bright contemporary example of this, look up Catherine Green McCrate, who works as an Episcopalian pastor. Catherine Green McCrate. But it is not enough to say that uh, friendship is a shared mind. Let's return to this broader theme. Sometimes you read great Christian thinkers and get the sense that friendship is about a purely mental exchange. Take Augustine or C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says it's like, um, it's like an exchange of uh, stripped, disentangled minds. There is truth to that, but we need to say more. Friends are friends in the body. Because Jesus' so-called farewell discourses involve a lot of talking, a lot of red text, an extended monologue, and because he speaks of revealing knowledge, we might have forgotten the ways that he actually physically touched his friends. There is, of course, the foot washing, where Jesus performs the most menial of tasks, and you see objections happening to it. Did he also pray for them? by, as we say, laying on hands? Did they embrace before parting? In any case, when he parted, he came to bodily harm, which brings up our third point. First, friendship requires equality. Second, friendship means sharing one's mind. Third, friendship is political. To be present in the body is to make oneself vulnerable in a way that sharing ideas does not. Welcome back to the kids. I think of a scholar who's studying the movement of black resistance to apartheid in South Africa. I mentioned a white South African scholar who'd written essays in support of the cause. This scholar acknowledged the writings but made a statement that remains with me. What they needed was his body in the streets. This is something of how Jesus was present to his disciples then in a vulnerable human body. And he faced real threats Threats Christians face daily around the world. 
Later in the gospel, Jesus has been incarcerated and beaten up. The Roman governor begins to have second thoughts, even tries to release Jesus at one point. The crowd, though, calls out, 19 verse 12, if you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. No friend of the emperor. To be a friend of Jesus can mean, evidently, to fall out of friendship with the powerful. More than that, friendship with Jesus can mean falling out with nothing less than the world. 19, verses 19 and 20. If you belonged to the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. Servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. I have to warn you then that friendship with Jesus can mean estrangement in this life. However, let's not confuse the, the, the reality of estrangement, which is sure, with the tactical decision to retreat or withdraw from our societies. There are plenty of reasons today for despair or resentment at our political systems. Take the recent crisis of liberal democracy. However, notice what Jesus does not say here. He does not uh, suggest they instead hold a weekend retreat in that upper room. Would have been an easier weekend for him. Nor does he suggest they leave the city to beat St. Benedict to the punch and found an alternative community. He gets himself hauled before the ruler of the day, and to that governor he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. To be a friend of Jesus means that we are to be truthful, means that we are to be of the truth. He is one of a long line of those who speak truth to power. For a recent instance of this, Minister of Parliament Jody Wilson-Raybould's new book. How can we too be the kinds of people who rise to such occasions? Let me suggest it requires friendships grounded in the truth. To be friends in the truth mean that we confess our sins to one another and so as to tell the whole truth, extend God's forgiveness to one another. We also challenge and correct when we see another living by lies. This was the actual friendship practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, and his closest friend near the end of his life, Eberhard Bethke. They began as confessors to each other. Imagine a friendship growing out of that. Such truth-telling will best be given and received when we actually share life together. That means sharing the truth of each other's sufferings, but just as much, if not more so, sharing the truth of each other's joys. Okay, but how is that kind of exchange political? In our late modern era especially, we are conditioned to see friendship primarily on intimate or even private terms. Alienated from an external world, we feel we can only reveal ourselves to some people in face-to-face -face encounters. When we talk about spiritual friendship, then, we often think of it in this way. Friendship, like spirituality in our time, is about private life. It's therapeutic. But friendship in the gospel is about more than spiritual or mental health. It is a new politics. And St. Peter's is about politics, right? This church was planted for the good of the city, 
The sign up there reads, joining God in the renewal, in seeking the renewal of Vancouver. So the fireside encounter is only the beginning. The New Testament helps us here. It's written against a background of political friendship. Cicero, who's given us one of the most influential essays on friendship, was a great Roman statesman and defender of the Republican model in the first century BC. Aristotle, whom we've already met, devotes two full chapters of his ethics to the subject of friendship, and that's in a book of only 10 chapters. I sometimes teach ethics, as Preston mentioned, to students who are training for ministry. They expect to learn how to, say, prevent sexual misconduct and how to discipline it and abuse. And they're right to think that. We need to shut that down with all due process, of course. But imagine spending more than two whole class sessions discussing how many friends one can have, how to identify and cultivate friendship, how to break off a friendship. Why does Aristotle devote so much attention to the theme? Because for him, friendship is integral to politics. He actually claims that, quote, friendliness is considered to be justice in the fullest sense. Friendliness is considered to be justice in the fullest sense. Friends are necessary to the health of any city. Concord, he says, is friendship between citizens of a state because it is concerned with their interests and living conditions. This is what sharing a mind and pursuing equality entail. These insights are very important for our polarized politics today, which seems to me to reveal the lack of close and abiding friendships. Remarkably, it's friendship that Hannah Arendt, the Jewish political theorist, puts forward as a way to maintain or to recover the humanness in politics. In an address given after the Second World War entitled Humanity in Dark Times, she comments on the understandable temptation to retreat from the world of politics. Maybe the rhetoric out there is too crass, too polarized, too brutal. Whatever the reason, people pull back from engagement. How tempting it was, she recalls, to ignore the intolerably stupid blabber of the Nazis. Years earlier, while in Germany, she'd worked courageously to cast light on the darkness of anti-Semitism, which led to her arrest by the Gestapo. She eventually escaped and moved to America, where she continued to develop her important work on what causes totalitarianism. One of her observations is that societies that are atomized, that is, societies in which people are isolated from one another, are especially vulnerable to a strong man who appeals directly to each person. We hear about endemic loneliness in Western societies. It's not a coincidence that proto-totalitarian leaders arise during such times. Against this trend, Arendt points to friendship, especially friendship that crosses social divisions, prejudices, even oppression, active oppression. She takes the case of a friendship between a German and a Jew under the Third Reich. Biographically, this actually describes her relationship with her husband. Theirs was not an abstract bond based on a common humanity. Their friendship was politically defiant. She writes, quote, in keeping with a humanness that had lost, not lost the solid ground of reality, a humanness in the midst of the reality of persecution, they would have had to say to each other, a German and a Jew and friends a German and a Jew and friends. Insofar as they could do this, she continues, without false guilt complexes on the one side, the German, and without false complexes of superiority or inferiority on the other, the Jew, 
then they would achieve a bit of humanness in a world becoming inhuman. A German and a Jew and friends. Anti-Semitism is a way of establishing domination. This friendship is defiant in maintaining equality. How about us? Jesus, the Jew, has called us, mostly Gentiles, to be friends. What does gospel friendship look like now in a city, in a world, that has profound inequality? Our time is different from the time in which Arendt lived, so the political importance of friendship will involve different alliances. Let me suggest one. We've been reminded once again that indigenous children and families have not mattered to those governing our state and our churches. Our churches, including the Anglican churches, being a church plant does not mean we don't share in that history. But we have an opportunity. I've spoken about the need for truth in friendship, and indigenous peoples in Canada have initiated the call for a truth inquiry. They're seeking a reconciled relationship, perhaps even friendliness, justice in the fullest sense. So not political abstractions on a social media feed, my temptation, but real meeting as equals, coming to a shared mind, then enacting a new politics. My father recently, during a very difficult period uh, of his life, lived in a small town in Ontario and found community in the Native Friendship Center. It was powerful to see, uh, for me to see them welcome this man of British ancestry, and he them. Somehow they even gave him a sweatshirt saying, bring our children home. Our children? Could this be a bit of humanness in a world often inhuman? The challenges are real, sometimes systemic. Neither virtue signaling nor tokenism is enough. Our world needs a commitment to friends living out the truth, the truth of the gospel a German and a Jew and friends. For that we'll need Jesus, whose self-sacrificial friendship shows us the way. He is the one who humanizes us, who humanizes our politics. Returning to John's gospel, to conclude, we will soon hear of the spirit whom Jesus promises, the spirit to come after him. Usually translated as comforter or counselor, even advocate, Eugene Peterson, in the message, actually translates this friend. Jesus speaks of another friend. Run with this. The Spirit is in us, filling us for the good works God commands. But remember that the Spirit is the way in which Jesus comes to us, the way that friendship with Jesus endures, that he is present to us now, sharing his mind, sharing his body. In a moment, Lloyd is going to come up here and recite these words. This is my body. This is my blood. No one has greater love than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus, in a mysterious but real way, present to us, sharing bodily life. Jesus, who made himself equal to us, though being in very nature God. Jesus, who shares his mind. Jesus, who invites us to live out a new politics in the gospel. Amen.